0: Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.
1: Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Monday, August 16th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how one of the earliest bloggers predicted the dark side of the internet and then went completely off-grid. Plus, the first tribally-affiliated medical school on tribal land in the U.S. is bridging gaps, and Yik Yak is back. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. In the early 90s, one man predicted much of what would befall us today, but pretty much no one listened to him. He wasn't just some dude who wrote a manifesto or something, he was a sought-after academic, a computer scientist who had become a humanities professor. His warnings about the direction technology was headed were published in academic journals and outlets like Wired. He even ran an internet mailing list, the Red Rock Eater News Service, which basically functioned like a newsletter does today, and is often considered a proto-blog. His name is Philip Agra, and as far as we know, he's still around, but his work remains unfinished, and his warnings about the future are only beginning to be taken seriously, as that future has mostly already come to pass. Here are some of his predictions, summarized in a recent article in the Washington Post. Quote, In a 1994 paper published a year before the launches of Yahoo, Amazon, and eBay, AgraForce saw that computers could facilitate the mass collection of data on everything in society, and that people would overlook the privacy concerns because, rather than Big Brother collecting data to surveil citizens, it would be many different entities collecting the data for lots of purposes, some good and some Problematic. More profoundly, though, Agra wrote in the paper that the mass collection of data would change and simplify human behavior to make it easier to quantify. That has happened on a scale few people could have imagined, as social media and other online networks have corralled human interactions into easily quantifiable metrics, such as being friends or not, liking or not, a follower or someone who is followed. And the data generated by those interactions has been used to further shape behavior by targeting messages meant to manipulate people psychologically, end quote. Agar also warned against the use of facial recognition back in 2001, going so far as to name-check the Chinese government as likely to use it to track its citizens. The Chinese government is indeed using facial recognition on a mass scale today, and debates and protests abound elsewhere around the world as people fight against the use of facial recognition on the public and, in particular, by law enforcement. Agra also had predictions about AI. Quoting again from the Washington Post, By the early 1990s, Agra came to believe the field of artificial intelligence had gone astray, and that a lack of criticism of the profession was one of the main reasons. Agra noted that those building artificial intelligence ignored critiques of the technology from outsiders, but, Agra argued, criticism should be part of the process of building AI. Nevertheless, AI has barreled ahead unencumbered, weaving itself into even low-tech industries and affecting the lives of most people who use the internet. It guides people on what to watch and read on YouTube and Facebook. It determines sentences for convicted criminals, allows companies to automate and eliminate jobs, and allows authoritarian regimes to monitor citizens with greater efficiency and thwart attempts at democracy. Today's AI, which has largely abandoned the type of work Agra and other we're doing in the 80s and 90s is focused on ingesting massive amounts of data and analyzing it with the world's most powerful computers. But as the new form of AI has progressed, it has created problems ranging from discrimination to filter bubbles to the spread of disinformation. And some academics say that is in part because it suffers from the same lack of self criticism that Agra identified 30 years ago. End quote. And I think that the following remains a critical point. A small group of academics, Agra included, observed that computer scientists viewed their work in a vacuum, largely disconnected from the world around it. At the same time, people outside that world lacked a deep enough understanding of technology or how it was about to change their lives. I'm reminded of The Verge's annual list of everything that most people don't understand about the tech they engage with every day. Things like how Facebook-targeted advertising works, why you can't save a Google photo or buy a Kindle book on an iPhone, what Bluetooth and iCloud really are, why phones don't really have headphone jacks anymore, and how to get faster internet, and what any of the language around internet speed even means. Now, you listening might understand all of that, especially any of you regular listeners of the tech meme, Ride Home, but the point is that most people don't. And they don't not understand because they're stupid, but because the tech industry has frankly done a terrible job of communicating any of that. And some of that is a science communicator problem and a STEM versus humanities breakdown that we could talk about forever, but some of it is a feature from on high, if people don't understand how the tech they rely on works, they won't question or notice when it's violating their privacy. And this is a key thing that Agra and others understood right at the beginning. Aggar was a bit of a child prodigy when it came to math. He was sent to college early and quickly regretted that. He took a year off grad school at MIT to travel and broaden his mind. He said that all he knew was math and computers, so he had to retrain his brain how to read non-technical works. And that set him on a path of becoming an incredibly perceptive scholar with an interdisciplinary approach to his work. I think it's how he was able to connect a lot of the dots that other people weren't at the time, especially his peers in tech. But he was frustrated that he wasn't being listened to, that no one in the industry was heeding his warnings. And whether that was the impetus or not, in 2009, he suddenly disappeared. The Chronicle of Higher Education reported at the time that he'd actually been missing for roughly a year, having abandoned his apartment and his job. His family filed a missing persons report for him. A few months later, NPR reported that he had thankfully been found safe and alive, but wanted to be left alone. The only news that was made public was a statement from the L.A. County Sheriff's Department saying that he was in good health and self-sufficient. Those close to Agra told NPR that the statement is not exactly the full story, that at the time they remained concerned. But given how clear it was the dude wanted some privacy and certainly deserved it, that's all that was said. The Washington Post article from this week noted that a few years back some of Agra's former colleagues at UCLA tried to put together a collection of his work, but that he resurfaced to ask them to stop. Simon Penny, a professor of fine arts at University of California at Irvine and someone who has studied Agra's work, said to the Post, quote, Why do certain kinds of insightful scholars or even people with such an insightful understanding of some field essentially throw their arms in the air and go, I'm done with this? Psychologically, people have these breaks. It's a big question. Who goes on and why? Who continues to be engaged in some sort of battle, some sort of intellectual project, and at what point do they go, I'm done? Or say, this is not relevant to me anymore, and I've seen the error of my ways. End quote. I've been watching this happen on a milder scale with people who were early proponents of the advantages of social media, of how it might democratize some spaces, granting access and resources to more people and building community. Clearly, those of us who used to speak about that had not read Agra's works, but a lot of folks who used to be major players in that realm have been some of the first ones to leave social media altogether, to delete their pages and take a huge step back from connected technology. Some are ringing the alarm bells, admitting in the way that Penny said they've seen the error of their ways, but others just kinda disappeared. Maybe not as extremely as Agra did, but certainly from their online presence. It's something I'm observing and grappling with and feeling in certain ways myself, but haven't yet come to any answers about. Maybe Agra would have those answers, or even does, but regardless of where he's at or what he's up to now, his published work from before can still be of some help today. And his work hasn't always been completely ignored, for the record. While it didn't make the waves it should have in the industry or on a policy level at the time, it has been taught in information and media studies courses for years, with some of his papers like Lessons Learned in Trying to Reform AI Being Considered Classics. More and more people are returning to his writings, both wishing they'd realized it before, and also taking away from it what action items they still can. I've only just started digging through a lot of his papers and articles, but I definitely encourage you to do the same, if it's of any interest. His foresight goes even beyond some of what I mentioned here, In one of his articles in Wired shed great insight into the ways the political parties in the US would continue to diverge from one another, and the ways they would leverage technology and communities against one another. And who knows what might have been if we'd listened better. As Mark Rotenberg, founder of the Center for AI and Digital Policy and editor of a book with Agra in 1998, said, quote, we're living in the aftermath of ignoring people like Phil, end quote.
0: In today's business world, any edge could be huge. And nobody offers more timely business advice than the Harvard Business Review. Whether it's their flagship magazine or digital content featuring articles, videos, podcasts, and more, you'll gain real-world insight into the most pressing topics facing business today. And now, for just $10 a month, you'll have unlimited access to Harvard Business Review content and subscriptions. Go to hbr.org subscriptions and enter promo code BUSINESS. That's hbr.org subscriptions, promo code BUSINESS. Oklahoma State
1: University has opened the very first tribally affiliated medical school on tribal land in the United States. The OSU College of Osteopathic Medicine at the Cherokee Nation educates native and non-native students on becoming primary care physicians interested in serving rural and underserved populations in Oklahoma. Quoting the Daily Yonder, The curriculum is the same as the Tulsa campus, which includes anatomy, genetics, and biochemistry, among other coursework. Then the students move into learning more in-depth and examining why patients come in, said Dr. Natasha Bray, interim dean of the school. Patient populations and the role of historic trauma are also discussed and taught, Bray said. We really talk about some of the barriers of being a person who lives in a rural community, and your access to care is 45 minutes or an hour away, and how that'll affect how a patient interacts with the healthcare system, she added. Cultural competence is high on the list of priorities for the school. This year, the school is adding an additional language course, Cherokee, to Spanish and sign language, Bray said, end quote. And I personally think this is super awesome and way overdue. And there are a number of communities, including native populations, but also black people, disabled people, and transgender people who have a history of being abused, experimented on, and ignored by medical professionals. So programs that train physicians on that history, as well as on cultural competency and how to effectively communicate with and listen to patients from these populations is really cool. The inaugural class at OSU completed their first year in the spring. One of the students, Ashton Gatewood, a citizen of the Choctaw Nation, who had previously worked as a public health nurse at Indian Health Services, told the Daily Yonder, quote, The more students we have from our community that come to the school and become physicians, the more it will inspire others to do the same thing, end quote. Notably, less than 1% of physicians in the U.S. are Native American, but of the inaugural class at OSU, 20% identified as American Indian. Not bad baby steps. Yik Yak, the anonymous location-based app that spread across campuses in 2014 and generated no small amount of bad press for its rampant bullying and harassment, is officially back and under new ownership. In case you missed it last time, it's a phone app, relaunched only on iPhones for now, that allowed users to read or post anonymous statuses to others within a 5-mile radius. You could comment on and upvote or downvote any posts, but that was about it. It was a pretty simple app, all things considered. i Mashable, The original version of Yik Yak was around for only a few years, 2013 through 2017, but it made a major impact, for better or worse. The first iteration of Yik Yak was focused on college kids, the app itself founded by Tyler Droll and Brooks Buffington, two students at Furman University in South Carolina. It was somewhat of an overnight success in 2014, exploding in popularity. Every school had a yik yak community. Once valued at $400 million, the app shuttered in 2017 with some of its engineering talent being bought by the payments service Square. End quote. There's not much info on the new owners yet, and the only other thing that seems to have changed about the app is the implementation of pretty intense and more than necessary community guardrails. I actually think these guardrails are pretty good, because in addition to just listing things that are against the rules, they also explain why that is, and offer what they call food for thought about why something like sharing someone else's personal info is a bad idea and especially for an app aimed at young people, I appreciate this sort of education. Of course, if anyone actually reads those, and if any of the guardrails are actually enforced, will remain to be seen. But they do have a one-strike-and-you're-out policy for violating any guardrails or other terms of service, and if a post gets more than five downvotes, it gets removed. They also make you tap through a few windows about safety and the guardrails before using the app, so, you know, that's something. I just can't stop thinking about how much Phil Agra would probably hate Yik Yak. This line from the Washington Post article about him keeps circling around my head, quote, He predicted that people would willingly part with massive amounts of information about their most personal fears and desires, end quote. Most personal fears and desires is definitely what an anonymous app like Yik Yak is designed to help facilitate, even if in practice a lot of posts are things like gossip or asking for location-based recommendations. And just because it's anonymous doesn't mean it's not scraping some of your data. But given this is the world that we live in, I think Ryan Broderick is, as usual, fairly on point with his take in his Garbage Day newsletter— Quote, "'Honestly, 2021 is probably a perfect time to bring Yik Yak back. It seems increasingly clear that the main trend in social technology is going outside.' Any app that wants to succeed in a post-pandemic world, or at least the world during this current COVID wave, needs to have some kind of way to branch the online and the offline, and Yak, harassment and abuse aside, does exactly that. End quote. Despite the fact that it's not even showing up when you search it in the app store yet, you have to go to their site or social media to get the exact link, it seems to be struggling under the weight of its well-publicized relaunch. It was definitely running slow when I tried to boot it up the first time, and once I got in there, there was nothing interesting at all to report from my neighborhood. Oh, also, for some reason, they got Brian Baumgartner, the guy who played Kevin on The Office, to announce the app's return, and no one really knows why. So there you go. A lot of questions remain, but Yik Yak is, apparently, back. So one last reading recommendation, today's edition of Ryan Broderick's Garbage Day newsletter that I referenced in the Yik Yak segment actually dovetails really nicely with the Philagra segment in the context of larger events happening in the world right now, specifically looking at the experience of watching major world events play out via social media. It's an interesting read and shares some fascinating archival message board finds from 2001, so check it out if you're so inclined. Link is in the show notes. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.